codes. There aren't any, exactly. But for some reason, I think a lot of us business owners, we are operating as though we could find them. And then sell them. And then sell them, right. We're operating like we could find them, market them, and then sell them all within about a 12-hour period. (laughs) What if instead we could not Google ourselves into finding an answer key? And what if instead we just trusted our own gut, tried a few things out, and got a little bit curious and asked what might happen? Welcome to Too Legitimate to Quit, instantly actionable small business strategies with a pop culture spin. I am your host, Annie P. Ruggles, and my guest today is the brilliant Melissa Guller. Melissa Guller is a course creation expert and the CEO of Wit and Wire, where she helps creators turn their skills and passions into profitable online course businesses. Previously, Melissa was the director of marketing engagement at Teachable, as well as the senior launch manager for Ramit Sethi's eight-figure course launch team. To date, she's taught thousands of students through General Assembly, Skillshare, and her own business, Wit & Wire, and she's on a mission to help more people make an impact and income online. Well, hey, Melissa, what do small business owners need to focus on this week? I think it's up to them. Hard for me to tell anyone else what to do, but I would just say the worst thing you could do is try to do all of the things, especially in a world of lots of shiny objects. So When I prioritize my week, I just ask myself, what makes me money? And I go from there. Oh, yeah. Good old money-making activities and how easy they are to forget to do. It's shockingly true, though. A lot of us have a lot of tasks on our plate, and a lot of them make no money at all. Or we're told that they'll make us money, but it'll take us years. So... I know it sounds maybe like a little tongue in cheek, but I really do look at my task list and I ask myself, how close is this task to money? And that's how I prioritize. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but I teach sales and recently I have had to really like stridently do that with myself because I, even I, who love sales, got swept up in shiny and fun. And I'm, you know, I'm writing a book right now and I have a podcast and I'm on podcasts and like all of that, like you said, is a longer term will make me money eventually game or is the brand awareness bucket of activities, which is important. But those have to be afterthoughts to my good old MMA money-making activities because, yeah, there are a lot of times where I don't bring enough discernment to looking at the profit of, of prioritization or the prioritization of profit. One of those two. You're right. It is really freaking easy to do that. How do we, not how do we know if something is going to make money quickly because that's extremely subjective and depends on about 95 gobajillion things. But, you know, are there some questions that you yourself 
ask to whittle your priorities down? Or are there particular landmines you know to avoid when it comes to structuring your day? I do a lot of monthly planning. So I have a place in my business. It happens to be in Notion. It's just called business ideas. A note page works too. But anytime I get an idea mid-month for something new and shiny, I do not add it to my task list. I add it to this business ideas page. Mm -hmm. And then on a monthly basis, I take a look and I think it helps me step back from what am I excited about right now today versus what actually makes the most sense for my business as a whole. And Mm. what I found is that a lot of ideas stay there for months or even years. And it's not because they're not good ideas. They're just not the right idea right now. So just being able to kind of separate yourself from the moment of excitement and the moment of execution makes a big difference. The moment of excitement to the moment of execution. Well, that's some freaking poetry. That's just gorgeous. Thank you. Came up with it just now right here. Well, the first time exclusive on that idea. Yes. Well, we we name a lot of books on this show. So <laughs> I think that that is number one. I love the idea of monthly and and I love the idea of having that shelf because for me, I used to always have like FOMO and FOBO, fear of better options, where I'd be like, I'm going to start this project. And then immediately as like a procrastination tool or a self-sabotage or something, like 97 other squirrel ideas would come out and be like, Eddie, no, don't do that. Do this. And like, you know, dangle itself at me. And I'd be like, oh, okay, sure. But one of the things I really loved and respected from my interesting time in Startup Landia and software was this concept of the icebox of of that shelf that you're not saying that this idea is never going to happen, nor are you losing track of the fact that you want to do it. It's not going into a notebook to die. It's in a very real, accessible place that's habitually checked And you can come back to those ideas. But also one thing that I didn't realize when I institute that in my own business is that things have a way of evolving on the shelf, even though you're not actively thinking about them. Like ideas will intermingle in the icebox or you'll go and you'll be like, oh, actually that title belongs on that product. And that's actually a podcast and boobity-doobity-doobity-doo because we're giving ourselves that gift of incubation time. So what else? Like what are some other strategies for telling ourselves soon, but not yet? One of the kind of, I think, part twos of this process is that I also... I also just decide not to do things anymore. Like it's not Mm -hmm. just about when you start them. It's also when do you pause or when do you stop? Like in the beginning of 2022, to my surprise more than anyone's, I got on TikTok as a way to build my audience. And I did a 30-day experiment all in. Let's just see how this goes. I ended up with 2,000 followers. I was shocked. But then the truth was I hadn't really budgeted time to continue doing it at that pace for the coming months. So... Mm -mm. I did a little bit more, but then I made a conscious decision a couple months later to say, I actually don't have time for TikTok right now. So we're going to come back to this in the fall. And so I went maybe three or four months without doing anything. Same with my very quickly growing YouTube channel. And I think a lot of experts would say, oh, but you're ruining all that momentum. You're not being consistent. Therefore, you are a failure. But I don't see it that way at all. The way I saw it was 
I needed to focus my attention on selling something, my course, making money, and then prioritizing my time to give to the people who had paid me versus the people who had not paid me. So even though from a distance, it may seem strange to pause on things that are working, I think sometimes just based on your own capacity, again, it just all, it all comes back to what is making me money? Am I making money? Mm-hmm. And if I am not making money, what do I need to do to change my situation to make sure that my business is on a path to profitability? Hell yes. What came up for me when you said that it's I thought of this idea of like not sacrificing for sake of momentum because I look at the things that we do sacrifice or that I myself have sacrificed for this fabulous pedestal idea momentum, right? And I have sat, I have sacrificed my mental health. I have sacrificed my physical health. I have sacrificed important moments that I chose not to participate in. I've sacrificed a lot of freaking sleep, which probably contributed to the mental and physical health stuff, right? But but I think it's so important because yes, momentum is key, but if you're also scaling the wrong activities, momentum's not actually that important, right? Because you got to 2000 TikTok followers really, really quickly. We still don't know what the buy cycle would be from somebody discovering you on TikTok. And it's probably longer than one of the cycles you chose to prioritize. It's actually shorter than you might think. But what happened was I got very active Then I ran an enrollment for my program and then the program closed so that I could deliver this experience. So the aha moment I had was, okay, I'm not selling anything right now. And I've got 30 people who just paid me money. So am I going to focus on the 30 people who just paid me money or am I going to try to keep up this momentum on TikTok? And that's how it became kind of a (laughs) no-brainer. You're like, bye, TikTok. Yeah, like I'll see you later. It's not never. It's not right now. Well, and TikTok... You know, there are so many other things. If they go and they're like, wow, Melissa hasn't put anything new out in a while. They're just going to go find some adorable raccoon taste testing chip video. Maybe that's just me. And and they'll get over it. And they'll go find you on your other million platforms that you're on. Or they'll go back and read your old emails. You know, if they're craving you, they can find you because you're not putting all your eggs in that TikTok basket anyway. I have made exactly two TikToks. So I tell people that I have ticked and I have talked. (laughs) But like, again, I'll get back on there when I get back on there. Yeah. And I can offer one more prioritization tip, which is the nerdiest one by far. Yes. Nerd (laughs) out, babe. So I too worked in Startup Landia. I was a project manager. I was a department head. And no matter what I think position you fall in in startups, there's always more work to be done than you could possibly do at once. And the pace is very fast. So on the teams that I was managing, we always came up with priority scoring systems. So to give one very specific example, in my online program, I get a lot of student requests. And I have my own ideas for how I want to improve the curriculum or make tweaks or add new resources. And you can't possibly do all of those things at once. It's impossible. So what I found in the beginning pre-system is that I would do either what sounded most fun to me or what a lot of people were asking about. And those aren't the worst. But now I actually have a scoring system where I rank on different criteria. Like what is the impact of this change? How hard is it for me to do this change? And a couple others, but those are the two most important. 
And then when I take a step back and I objectively look at which ideas have the highest score, it really helps me assess what to focus on first based on what will help the most people, but also things that I can kind of crank out a little bit more quickly versus the things that might take me a month or longer to do. Tangible, attainable to-dos. Exactly. Right? We're we're putting out, we're actually delivering because that's the other thing is we can all have these lofty fantasy ideas on, I'm going to have a retreat in the Alps and it's going to be incredible and it's going to be two weeks long and blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. That sounds freaking amazing. However, you sold a course and they would like a new PDF, please. <laughs> like, let's yeah. do one thing at a time, babe. Like, and also keep the people that paid you happy. They'll keep paying you and they'll tell your friends to pay you. I love the, that you were a PM. I think project managers are absolutely uh, wizards, possibly genies. I mean, I've seen project managers pull off some crazy, crazy things. I have tried to take a project manager tone with myself when I am falling behind in something um, or I would listen to how like when our software products were going to be delayed or over budget, how like the diplomacy of the project managers getting the client to understand the changes. And, and I've tried to take that tone with myself as well when I kind of miss my own expectations. My question for you is, um, I'm a really shitty project manager to myself. I'm really mean. I don't start out being mean, but then it always kind of de-escalates. How can we be, as solopreneurs or super small teams, how can we be effective project managers to ourselves? Great question. I think there's kind of two parts I can answer. One is PM tips, like how do I actually maybe be a better project manager? And the other is, how do I be nicer to myself? So in terms of just the straight up, like how do I recommend that if you have no project management skills, how do you manage this project? I have two specific thoughts. One of them is however long you think this is going to take you, double it. Yeah. Like when you're planning anything that you're doing, if you feel your mind saying something like, oh yeah, I'm sure this will take me an hour, budget for two. Do you think mm -hmm. it'll take you a month? Budget for two. And the worst thing that could happen with that approach is that you end up with spare time, which I have no doubt that you'll fill with all those ideas we put in the icebox. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a vacuum. That'll fill right so, away. So like that's, that's no problem. But I think where most people go wrong is they budget using the most ambitious possible time. So you're basically operating on a system of assuming that A, everything's going to go to plan and B, that you even knew what the plan looked like to start with, which we don't often, especially if we're doing something new. You just don't know all the things that go into it. And that kind of leads me into tip number two. A lot of us are so ambitious. We have all these ideas. And so we try to pack 100% of our working hours. Whether that means you have 10 hours a week, 40 hours a week. If you're that person with 10 hours a week, you try to fill all 10. But there's this concept called the whirlwind from one of the many management books that I'm misremembering the title of, it basically says that there's always this unknown of tasks that will come up, things that will break, things that you just can't anticipate. And so if you haven't actually left space in your schedule to anticipate any of those things, then mm -hmm. you're going to fall behind. So between mm -hmm. those two, maybe it's no surprise that a lot of people feel like they can't project manage because they're not leaving space for things to go wrong. And if there's anything I learned from both project management and event production, my other former career, 
it's that things always go awry. Yeah. So <laughs> like, that's just the truth of it. Right. And I think kind of getting into the second piece, right? Like, how can I be kinder to myself? I think a big part of the problem is that if you go into it with the expectation that the goal is perfection, that the goal is for your plan to go off without a hitch, you just will always be disappointed. For me, I've launched courses for myself, working for Teachable, working for Remit. We're doing like over a million dollars a month working for Remit, right? And so there was no launch we ever did where I thought to myself, this is going to go the way that I think that it's going to go. Instead, I always had this mindset of how can I be ready if something doesn't go according to plan? So I always mm -hmm. had backup plans for the tech. I always had very literal manuals that the whole team had on like, if this goes wrong, here's what we do. If this doesn't happen, here's what we do. And even just having the mindset of, I assume things will evolve versus my goal is for this to be perfect. I think it just makes a huge difference. Not every campaign works. Not everything sells the way that you think. Totally fine. You've learned something that's fine. But I think removing that pressure that you put on your own shoulders to say like, it's okay if this changes. I'm expecting that this will change. I think that really just changes the inner narrative. Thank you for reminding me how soothing it is to have a backup plan. I drive my husband crazy with this because he'll be like, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, how about Chinese? And I'm like, okay. And I agree to it. And then I'll be like, okay, but if you don't find a Chinese place you like, we could get salads. And he's like, we already have a plan. I'm like, I know. I just want to offer a good backup plan. I don't do that in my work. I don't give myself that secondary option. Which is also funny because like, as we talked about, as we've established, I have an icebox. So a lot of the time, a secondary option content wise or product wise or podcast wise is like sitting in my icebox waiting like, hello. But I, I think that that's huge because now what I see is this is this kind of dance or fight between these two topics that have been circling each other this whole conversation, which is ambition an expectation and how to fuel one without offsetting the other, right? Or how to, like, how can we rein in our expectations without killing our ambition? And how do we set good expectation? Or, you know what I mean? So, so what is this dance? Like, what, what is, first of all, a lot of people love the word ambition. A lot of people hate the word ambition. What is your personal relationship to the word ambition? I feel like I have a positive relationship to it. I've always been fairly like driven and I've used the word ambitious to describe myself. But I mm -hmm. think working in some of the past, you know, full-time jobs that I've had, there's some cutthroat work environments. There's breakneck yeah. pace to some of the jobs that I've had. I've had amazing jobs. I've had really stressful jobs. and a lot of what I went through in my full-time work led me to want to start a business specifically so that I could have the freedom of time, the freedom to choose how I spend my time. And I did not start a business to let this business run me. So no. a big part of my decision-making, a lot of what we're chatting about, it's just having this awareness that my goal is not to be a workaholic. My goal is to have the financial freedom to live my life to be around family, to spend time with loved ones, to not have to stress. It's to do work that feels fulfilling and to spend my time doing my favorite kinds of work. And 
I think that when I keep that in the forefront of what I'm doing and what I'm planning, then it makes me feel positively about the word ambition. I think where it starts to take a turn is either where you're expecting too much of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then I think there can be a disconnect where if you say, I'm going to do all of these things this quarter, and then the quarter ends and you realize you've only done half the list. I think it would be easy to look at your own choices and to think, wow, I've really let myself down. Yeah. But even if none of these project management tips stick the first time, like maybe it takes some trial and error. Maybe there's like learning along the way. I think one of the reasons I've succeeded as a business owner is because I don't assign my own worth to the dollar amount on my business. Yeah. And I don't know. I just think we have to be kinder to ourselves about not needing things to go the way you picture them in your head and not trying to cram all of the work into every minute of the day and not wearing a busy badge and saying, oh, I'm working so hard. I'm working all these long hours. Therefore, my business is doing the best. Um, And I think that that's a really hard mentality for a lot of us to let go of, especially depending on the former roles or careers that we may have had because a lot of roles, unfortunately, value and very literally pay you to work more and to work harder and to prove yourself. But as a solopreneur, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. So I don't know. It's definitely a fine line. And I hope that people know that business isn't about getting it right the first time. And if that's what you expect of yourself, you will always stress yourself out. So just go into anything you do in your business with more of like a curiosity. Like, oh, what if I tried this? What could happen? So that's how I see a lot of what I've done, whether it's different launch strategies, sales strategies, marketing channels, the TikTok experiment. My goal, like TikTok is a good example. My goal was not, I'm going to try this. Therefore, it'll work. Therefore, my business will grow. It was just more a curiosity. Like, wow, like if I tried this for 30 days, what could happen? And that's how I try to see most things in my business. I love that curiosity because I know even as a strategist, and I've been one for over a decade, I really sometimes get rigid about uh, the outcome of my experiments. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. It's an experiment, right? But I'll be like, this is going to be the strategy that makes everyone around me $10 billion and we all get a TED Talk. And I'm like, why am I doing this? It's an experiment. I haven't even done it yet. Maybe do it twice before you start hanging all your hopes on it, right? Like, good Lord. But that, again, is expectation, right? We're looking for that sort of false validation before we even get started. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in addition to anticipation to execution, you also named your next book, and it's taking off the busy badge because the busy badge is the most clever idea I've ever heard in my life. And I would like to, I would like to turn mine back in. I will accept them. I'm running a collection. It's a very long line. We have a lot of people who need a hand in the busy badge. So yes, I will happily accept. I would wear a badge that says take off your busy badge because I, I'm a workaholic. I am a workaholic. I will say that on my own show. I am working on it. It is challenging. I have recently been taught that workaholism is a form of money worship. That makes me feel real gross. And it actually is kind of helping me work out of that. I love money. I don't want to worship money. I don't want my whole life to be based on money. 
but I can have both. There's a huge area between not letting money control your life and still loving to spend money. <laughs> um, but I think for me, I see nobility in that busy badge. If I'm always doing, if I'm always working, no one can say I didn't try. No one can say I didn't do. I don't know. I don't know what the psychology is. Like I said, I'm still unpacking it. But that idea of taking off that busy badge, ooh, that felt good. And then I want to put something else in its place, like a Pawnee goddess badge or a Girl Scout badge or something happier. Leslie would approve. <sighs> Thank you, Leslie. Okay. So one thing I got to talk to you before we transition, or maybe this will transition us into today's pop culture topic, uh, this idea of leading with curiosity, treating ourselves with curiosity, but that critical importance of trial and error. You said that it's important to you to like get that idea out. Why do you think experimentation is so anxiety inducing in some people? And how can we add joy with the curiosity to that trial and error? Basically, how do we play more, experiment more and, and face the fact that not all of experiments are going to fail? It's trial and error, not trial and constant success. <laughs> I think what we as business owners want is certainty. Oh, We literally pay so much money to either hire contractors to do the work. We enroll in courses. As much as I love them, we're looking for answers. We're looking for certainty. We go down the YouTube rabbit hole. We want to know, if I do this, will I be successful? And I think what's scary about trial and error is you're almost admitting, well, I'm not totally sure if this yeah. will work. But to me, that's also the best part. Like I have this background in marketing and the the biggest takeaway that I continue to have about what works in marketing. And people always ask me, how do I market my course? How do I sell more? Like, I, these are questions I'm sure you hear all the time too, right? How do mm -hmm. I make more? How do I do more? And the answer, it depends, is unsatisfying. But the only way you'll figure out what works for your business is by trying, by testing. So yep. if you can fall in love with the process of trying new things and seeing them as interesting and creative and learning, the other positive side effect is that it removes the pressure that maybe unknowingly you're putting on yourself, where if you don't believe in trial and error, you're basically telling yourself, I have to be perfect. I Everything I do has time. to work the first time. Yep. Exactly. And I think if I were to ask you, like, do you think everything has to go right the first time? I think you would say no. I think most normal people would say no. I don't expect that. But that that is what we're doing. So I hope that maybe we can help release some people of that and maybe see trial and error as just a way to say, I'm really curious. This is super interesting. Look at all these ideas. How exciting that I have the opportunity as a business owner to literally do whatever I want and that I can try these different things and that if it works, great. And if not, super helpful. Now I've learned something that maybe doesn't work for my business and now I can focus my energy elsewhere. And it just totally removes the stress of all or nothing perfection or nothing, yeah. sales or nothing, that mindset will never get you anywhere. No, but you kind of, I mean, you said, I hope we can start to relieve. <laughs> you blew my mind in that I've never, and thank you, I've never, like I just said, I'm a workaholic. I, I don't think it has ever occurred to me before. And maybe I should have said I was a workaholic because you just totally changed my mind. 
I think the reason I was a workaholic, oh God, don't cry on your own podcast, Annie. Here we go. Rain it in. The reason why I've identified as a workaholic for so long or the reason I have allowed myself to overwork and overdeliver for so long and I didn't realize it was that in my mind, the more or harder I worked, the more hours I put in, the closer I could be to pure certainty. And that's not how it works. It's not a sum game. But I think that's how a lot of people think it works. Right. Like if I'm stressed out, if I'm churning, I can be calmer and more certain even though I'm exhausted because it's more likely. It's not more likely. It's not more likely. It's certainly it's it's even less likely if I am kicking the ever loving shit out of myself. And I'm not playing because also that's the other thing is I, I self-identify as a Muppet. If I'm not playing, what am I even doing with my life? Like, I have a pop culture podcast. If I'm not playing, what am I doing with my life? So, so listener, I am not having an, an existential crisis right now. I am totally fine. But I'm hoping that by modeling this, I have just learned with my new friend, Melissa, that that, that is not how we get to certainty and that we can't get to certainty. So so following passion, whim, experimentation, logic, science, metrics, all of that has so much more certainty than certainty does. Yeah. Just realizing that there's not an answer key. Like nothing that oh. you purchase is going to give you a right answer. Oh my God, an answer key. It's like the cheat codes that used to be in Nintendo magazine. Like Exactly. But we don't get that. There are no cheat codes. There aren't any. Exactly. But for some reason, I think a lot of us business owners, we are operating as though we could find them. And then sell them. And then sell them. Right. We're operating like we could find them, market them, and then sell them all within about a 12-hour period. <laughs> exactly. So what if instead we could not Google ourselves into finding an answer key? And what if instead we just trusted our own gut, tried a few things out, and got a little bit curious and asked what might happen? There is no answer key. Put that on soap bag. Damn. <laughs> Book number four coming to you in 2027. Oh my God, we're just nailing them. Like you got a whole product book line got a trilogy coming out, right? My God, and we haven't even got to the pop culture piece yet. We already got four books in a tote bag. Damn. You're a one-woman conference. I told you I like to earn money. I'm here to do it. I mean, y'all, if you are not preparing your money over there, are you even listening? Are you even listening? Well, wake up because we're about to talk about Mario. So cheat codes, hacks, answer keys, all of that, that easy button, that also, that that cheat, undoes the work required to get traction, right? So we might get there, but we didn't have the experience. We didn't really learn anything from it. And and it also kind of robs the fun of the gamification of the thing. So with all of that in mind, <laughs> clunkytransitions.com with Annie P. Ruggles, uh, what the heck does ambition, prioritization, curiosity, certainty, cheats, hacks, Mario Paper. How are these related? Or Paper Mario, not Mario Paper. Listen, Mario Paper, that could be the next big thing. Mario is it paper. origami? Is it a video game? No one knows yet. 
Get at me, Nintendo. Well, actually, get at <laughs> Melissa. We're trying to make her money this episode. This is her MMA. We are, but we're also not trying to infringe on copyright. So you all can have that idea, Nintendo. Please don't come at me. <laughs> come at with as consultants. We're not marketing these things. Exactly. We're consulting. Yes. And I think when it comes to Paper Mario, we definitely could talk about like gamification and how that affects business and things. But instead, I thought what could be a little more interesting is to talk about how the concepts that go into game creation and onboarding users and experiencing a game, how those could affect creating a really great either online course or client experience and just like delivering a really great product. Because to me, that's one of the biggest things that's going on in a video game that you might not even notice is going on. So there's this concept to get like a little nerdy at first and then we'll get even nerdier, I guess, with the Paper Mario. Please. Oh, you are making my nerd heart so freaking happy right now. So as far you want to go down the nerdy rabbit hole, babe, you just go. All right. So we're going to jump two feet in and start off with a theory. So the University of Phoenix did this study about how adults learn and how information sticks. And they Mm -hmm. found that adult learners We need structure. We need predictability. We need a clear path. There's a whole theory, like adult learning theory, which says that the reasons why adults learn is very different from kids. Kids go to school because it's just part of their day. It's just the way the world works. But adults have chosen to learn. They are intrinsically motivated. They are often financially invested. And so as your adult is going through your course or even your client experience, they need to know that there is structure. They need to know what's coming up next. They need to have a clear goal. It's almost as though the way that a client hires you to do work one-on-one, they are effectively hiring your course to do a job, to reach an outcome. And so what the University of Phoenix found is that they have these three principles, learn, practice, and apply. And they are perfectly modeled in Paper Mario for us to talk about the similarities between the two. Oh my God, I'm loving this. I'm excited. Keep on going. So learn is maybe the the obvious place to start. That's where you share the information that people need in order to kind of share a language and to move through the world. So in Paper Mario, in the very early levels of the game, they pretty literally put Goombas everywhere, these little characters, to offer tips. You can talk to the Goombas They might politely suggest that you open a door or that you look behind a tree or that you learn how to jump or that you learn how to use your hammer. So they are giving you very clear instructions to help you move through it at the beginning. You get into your first battle. They tell you exactly which controls to click. So they are teaching you how to play the game. And if you were just to plop yourself down into chapter four halfway through, you wouldn't know what to do. You would feel lost. You would feel at risk potentially of abandoning the game altogether because you've not yet learned the mechanics. So that's the place that we start. Then, oh, I've rage quit many a game that didn't have a good tutorial. I'm like, I don't know how to do. And what's important about that is people will rage quit your course too. If you haven't given them the right information, not only to learn what they're paying you to learn, but you also have to teach people how to take your course. You have to tell them, this is the place where you go to log in. This is how you access the program. Do you have calls? Do you have a community? You need to very literally reassure people that they know how to use 
your game. They know how to use your course. And I think that's something that too many course creators are skipping. So the learning is twofold. You have to learn about the world. You have to learn about the content, but you also have to learn the mechanics of the thing that you're doing. Yes. Don't forget to show the mechanics. Dang. Yeah. So that's part one, learn. Then we go into practice. So this is the opportunity for your students to maybe test out what they've learned in a very safe, very structured environment. This lets your students or your game players kind of test out what you've just taught them to see, are they picking up what you're putting down? So as an example, I used to teach in-person Excel classes and people famously hate or feel intimidated by Excel, but I had this workbook where I would plan out the exercises, give them exactly the data I wanted them to use, and then they would use that workbook to play with the if function, to play with VLOOKUP. That's the practice. If you have a yoga practice, a music practice, there's a reason why we use this word. And in the realm of Paper Mario, when you get into your first battles, they're pretty straightforward. You are practicing the mechanics of what they taught you in the tutorial. Then as you go through the game, Mario meets new partners and they all have these fun special skills. So you meet Bombette. She can blast through walls. So right after you meet, they give you a little practice. Like it's no coincidence that the room where the two of you meet just happens to have one of these new walls that you can blast through. Or you meet different characters who can help you transport through walls or be invisible. And surprise, surprise, there's exactly that new skill in the room that you have. And this practice is crucial. And especially for course creators, I feel like it's skipped. People go straight from teaching you a concept into then having you like write your life's work dissertation, but they've <laughs> never even had you write a paragraph about who you are and what you had for lunch today. <laughs> That's so true. That's so totally true. I took a course like that once and at the end they literally like, so now you know everything you need to know. And I'm like, I do? You're like, no, actually I know nothing because you <laughs> have not told me anything. You've not had me practice any of those skills. And yep. then I will say, just to round out our concept, the, the third piece is apply. Like once yeah. you have practiced and once you've been in that little structured safe place, then you can expand. So in the world of Paper Mario, mm -hmm. there are all these different puzzles you can unlock. So the first mm -hmm. time you and your partner see this wall, it's very obvious. But then as the game shifts, there are different things that they look a bit different. You didn't know necessarily that your partner could do that. But if you do a little trial and error, you might find that she can actually blast through holes in the ground as well as the wall. Or maybe the battles get more intense. They're not quite as obvious. And now you have to use your past experience to figure out what to do because there's no one right solution anymore. But if you hadn't gone through those practice rounds, you wouldn't know the mechanics of what to use and when. And the course is the same. Like if I taught people in my Excel class just the mechanics of a VLOOKUP function in Excel, and then they go back to their job, they're not going to know how to use it and they're not going to know when to use it. They're so not by using my own little examples, yeah, there's no context at all. So you need the practice. And the same is true, for example, in my program, I help people create online courses and people are so intimidated by the video, the recording, mm -hmm. all of that. So if I teach you how to make, let's say your curriculum and how to record your videos, and then I just say, go ahead, that's going to feel super daunting. So instead, the first video I have people create is just a little introduction. That video mm -hmm. doesn't have to go anywhere. The whole point of it is practicing 
using the tools so that you feel confident so that you can create and apply your own special stuff to your course. So the the theory, learn, practice, apply, I think is super critical for course creators, for anyone delivering a great client experience. And Mm -hmm. in Paper Mario, they're modeling all these things and really any games. You'll start to notice they very literally teach you how to play their own game and then they build on it. That's the last piece is that it cycles. You learn a little, you practice a little, you apply. Then you go into the next stage and it's a little bit harder. The boss is a little bit better. Your partner is a little bit cooler. And now you're learning more little skills practicing additional mm-hmm. skills, layering you're leveling up you before you're, you're literally leveling up. Online courses are all a series of levels, but that's not how most people are designing them. And even when people talk about gamification, it's really just like points and little on-screen celebrations. But I think if you can embrace this mentality, then you'll start to notice that your course, or again, like a one-on-one experience too, you're talking with your client at first. You're learning about them. You're teaching them the essentials. You're getting them used to the new thing that you're doing together, especially if you're consulting. And then you're applying it to their own work. It's all just a series of learn, practice, apply. And I find it very fun in addition to being very practical. Like I'm asking myself, how can I help people practice in a meaningful way? How can I help them apply this? How can I make sure that I'm not leveling people up too quickly? Because that's on me as the instructor. It's my goal to teach you how to take my course and give you the tools that you need to succeed and then also give you the information to reach the goal that you signed up for in the first place. What a gorgeous question. How can I help people practice in a meaningful way? What a gorgeous, gorgeous question. Because it also takes pressure off. We're not saying, how can I get someone a gajillion dollars overnight? Or how can I help someone lose 75 billion pounds overnight? Or what's the easy button or this or that? It's like, how can I help someone get better at something? That's it. And think about why they paid you. They could have gone to YouTube. People ask me all the time, why would people pay for a course? They can just go to YouTube. Absolutely. Knowledge is everywhere. But Mm -hmm. they're paying for your course because they want certainty. We were talking about this before. People want to know that you've done this before. You've got the proven path. You've arranged all the information. You've cut out all the noise. That's part of it for sure. Learning, knowledge, that's part of it. But people are also paying for the accountability of reaching a goal that they want for themselves. They're paying for the opportunity to do it, to commit to themselves, to very literally invest in themselves. And that's not something that you can get from YouTube videos. So when somebody joins your course, like when people enroll in my programs, I really don't take it lightly. And I'm really thinking through like, how can I help somebody make the time to do this? Because that's a big blocker for a lot of us. Whether you're in a course or not, we all have too much on our plate And a big issue is that we've not created the space to do the thing. So if you can help people put time on their schedule, if you can help be very super clear about what to do week one and what to do week two, or even in some of my programs that are further along in their life cycle, I give people options. Do you want to complete this in 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days? It's completely up to you. I don't prescribe it. I let them self-direct. So I really just think there's so much more that goes into it. It's like, how did you design the game itself, not just the plot that you've built within the game. Yes. And people play games differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe like one of my them. favorite things of being in a two gamer household is like, I'll play a game through and I'll be like, all right, that's with us. He'll make all the different decisions. He'll find all the Mario pathways I didn't find. Well, he's also a much more established gamer than me. And that's also interesting too, in that like, I didn't grow up with a console. My dad listens to this podcast. Thanks, dad. 
Um, but I didn't grow up gaming. Katie Elhoffer uh, of Elhoffer Designs had a Sega and a Super Nintendo. And when I would hang out with her occasionally, we would play either Aladdin or The Lion King. And that was pretty much it. And that was my full gaming experience until I met my now husband when I was 29 years old. Uh, which is wild. And now I like never stop. Like I'm addicted to power wash simulator of all things. But like it's interesting to see how an established gamer with his specific skill set, his hand-eye coordination, his deep and vast knowledge of how the Mario systems work, right? Oh, that looks like a place. Like you said before, like, ooh, that looks a little bit different. That looks like that might be something there. Or knowing everybody's special skills. Oh, I got to get this person for this level because they're really perfect at the blotty blah Like that is earned knowledge that you can see how you watch people game, but also he's braver in experimenting because he's more confident in that earned knowledge. Ah, blowing my mind. I think that there's also like a freedom to gaming that you're talking about, which I love. If you were to watch two different people play Paper Mario, they might do some Mm -hmm. things in different orders, but Mm -hmm. it is a plot-driven game. Similar to an online course, Paper Mario has a clear objective. As with all Mario Mm -hmm. games, the goal is to beat Bowser. But you also just don't go straight to Bowser, which is potentially another course creation mistake where there are small bosses and they increase in difficulty and, frankly, (sighs) coolness as you go throughout the game. And so as you're designing your course, you have to think about what makes sense in what order. People have a little freedom to do it in the way that they want, but people are literally paying you for a linear path to reach the outcome they want as quickly as possible. So it's up to you to decide what order do the bosses go in between now and Bowser. Now I just want like a digital marketing entrepreneurship, the game, (laughs) and then have like small bosses increasing in coolness. Oh my gosh. What would be some of the bosses, do you think? I feel like we got to chuck Gary V in there somewhere because everybody thinks he's so cool. And so he just like trots out in a t-shirt and jeans and says fuck a whole lot. And if you can like say fuck more than Gary Vaynerchuk in the sequence, like you win. But he's like the tutorial boss because he thinks he's all that, but we know. (laughs) Okay, yes. I love the idea of like a Gary V tutorial of like, Whenever he says fuck, hit A. And at yeah. the end of it, you're just like spamming A. A, 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 We Great all have carpal job. tunnel. Level cleared. <laughs> oh, God. Some of the other bosses would be like, first time you get put in Instagram jail. Like the, the Instagram jail boss. Again, low ranking. Not cool. But very persistent. And the level just goes on and on and on and on forever. And so you feel like you keep her, like you're coming up on the flag, but you just never do. <laughs> or another boss is like, segmentation. Are you up for that challenge? Ah! Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But like follow-up, segmentation. I mean, anything anything involving math. There you go. Spreadsheets. I love to see a spreadsheet boss <laughs> that comes out and it's like, function error. And you're like, why? Okay, no joke. I would play this game, though. Come on. I know. So would I. We could write this game. Nintendo, I know you're listening. Hit us up. Hit us up. First, we're, you're going to make Mario paper, which is paper shaped like Mario. Exactly. 
And then you're going to make this entrepreneurship life-esque game. We're going to put the name. It's in an icebox. We're going to figure it out, though. We're going to figure it out. And then it would also be fun to eventually make it like turn-based. I told you we were going to nerd out. And then you could like bring your bookkeeper and your social media manager with you. Oh, my God. But you probably have to collect coins so you can pay them. Exactly. They'll leave you if you don't pay them. Oh, my God. Okay. So maybe now it's getting too close to real life. And maybe we should pause while we're ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We have to save Peach's business from going bankrupt. Oh, my God. Bowser's really just like the SBA and wants his money back. She sells pies. (laughs) Or... In the first Mario plot, I think possibly ever, Mario and Luigi are actually plumbers and they actually have to have a profitable plumbing business. And the two of them are like, oh, no, didn't see this coming. Thought we could just be overall wearers forever. There we go. They've never had to work an honest day in their life. Mario plumbing, in addition to actually having to plumb things, whatever the verb of plumbing is plunge clear i don't know i like plumb as a verb plumb whoever needs plumbing whatever needs plumbing in addition to that they have to have a outreach team a hr team uh on-site insurance they're gonna need insurance for site management get at us mario this is a hit Oh, my God. All right. I could keep you here all day, but I uh, should let you do beautiful and productive money-making activities because that is what we are all focusing on this week. Exactly. We can't plan Mario's whole business. We got to let him do it on his own. Exactly. We've talked about fighting the bosses. We've talked about how the bosses increase in coolness. We've talked about special skills and buddies with special skills and the fact that our own special skills need practice. Still got to figure them. We've talked about answer keys. We've talked about cheat codes. We've talked about all of these things, but we haven't talked about power-ups. So my question for you is, in the video game that we ultimately make when Nintendo just adores us so much, they'll make whatever we want. In uh, Melissa Guller, the game, working title, what do you collect as power-ups? That's a great question. Definitely in the game, we're collecting coin. I don't think anyone doubts that. That's just kind of like the baseline of what's going on. Yeah. If I were to guess, I'm guessing we're collecting kind of pieces of knowledge. I feel like we're we're learning. We're picking different things up. We're putting ideas together. We're solving puzzles. And I feel like in the end, like you got to build up enough knowledge to beat these bosses along the way. And then in the end, it's all going to come together. I love it. Yeah. Picking up like brain boosts. We're picking up naps. Uh, Like, we're doing a lot, I think. Nintendo, are you hearing this, Nintendo? My God, just brilliant. All right, well, you have really made me want to redo my entire online course, so um, screw you, but also thanks for that. Uh, But if other people have been on the positive side of it, wonderfully motivated to build a better course, fix the course they have, start a new journey, gamify, experiment, try, error, learn, practice, apply. If they need your help for any and all of those things, what is the best way for them to start a conversation with you? You can find me anywhere online at Wit and & Wire. And I do have a freebie because I'm always asked about all the tools that I recommend. 
So I have an online course toolkit. It's free. You can download it at witnwire.com slash course toolkit. And it'll talk about all the different equipment, tools, software, all that good stuff. And either you can put it to use today or you can put it on ice. Look at how you just wrapped up the whole episode. That was masterfully done, y'all. Oh my God, you just unlocked the bonus round. But the bonus round is like getting to go back to your life. Thank you so much for this absolutely inspiring, nerdtastic episode. It's been a delight to have you. Thank you for having me. Y'all, I'm just going to revel in this nerdtastic joy that I'm feeling, and I'll be back in just a second with my final thought and your homework for this week. Well, hey there. One thing gaming has taught me is patience, patience, patience. Whether it's the final level of Power Wash Simulator, which literally took forever to complete, or dying a bazillion times trying to just get through the first level of Aladdin, if I get frustrated, it ruins my fun. My only alternative is to fall in love with the challenge and fixate on the process until I get there. This week, I'm so inspired to infuse this reaction to trial and error and to outright repetitive failure into my work. Because beyond the confines of Nintendo and Xbox, I'm really nasty to myself when things don't go as planned. I often quit after only one or two attempts instead of adapting and re-strategizing from there. Your homework this week, our homework this week really, is to run a postmortem on something recent that didn't quite work out, but to approach it from a place of curiosity, maybe even playfulness, instead of pessimism and self-blame. What did work, and therefore what could be doubled down on before the whole strategy is thrown out with the trash? Where are you just in dire need of some purposeful practice? How can you see the issue at hand differently from this more compassionate viewpoint? Princess Peach is always stuck in some castle somewhere, but Mario has done literally everything to find and save her, including playing golf and tennis and driving over dozens of banana peels. He didn't give up. The very first time he tried to jump in a pipe and that pipe didn't go anywhere. He just kept jumping. And so must we. Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode kept you laughing and learning, I have two requests for you. First, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button, depending on your platform, so you never miss an episode. And also, more importantly, if you are looking for support, inspiration, networking, collaborations, or just a chance to hang out with me, Annie P. Ruggles, and our fantastic guests, make sure that you are a member of our LinkedIn community, The Legitimati. It is a weird and wonderful place. I can't even believe it's on LinkedIn, and we want you there. You'll find the link in the show notes. Big shout out, as always, to the fabulous dudes who helped me make this show. My producer and editor, Andrew Sims of Hypable Impact. My theme composer, Riley Horbacio. And my show art creator, Francois Vigno. See you next time.